Good morning, everybody. We are going to be uh, sort of uh, speeding through um, Matthew 26, 27, and 28 uh, the next three weeks to get to the cross and the resurrection. So we spent two years or whatever, it's been going slowly through Matthew, and we're kind of going to speed on through here a little bit to get to there, and we may circle back and fill in some of the things we missed. We may not. We'll see how it goes. Um, for those of you that uh, love the slowness of our pursuit through Matthew, let us know. For those of you who are like, please be done with Matthew, let us know. Um, we may consider your opinion, maybe. No. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 26 today. Uh, I'm going to kind of build on last week, uh, looking at Jesus and his time in the Garden of Gethsemane and his prayer with God and the agony he was experiencing as he entered into the garden. Um, so Matthew 26, 36 through 34 is our main passage for today. Uh, let me read it and then let's pray. Um, for those of you who have been here before, you know what to do. For the, your new folk, we're going to stand as we read God's word as a show of honor to God and his word and as a sign of God moving in and amongst us. So those of you capable of standing, please stand with us as we read. Matthew 26, 36 through 44, the prayer in Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going forward a little, he fell down on his face, praying and saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So were you you not able to stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you will not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, Your will must be done. And he came again and found them sleeping, for they could not keep their eyes open. And leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same thing again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Behold, the one who is betraying me is approaching. Let's pray. God, uh, I think many of us have heard this story before. I don't think that many of us have really appreciated the agony that you endured in the garden and what it really means for us. And Lord, today I pray that you will, you will make that clear to us. May we see the magnitude of the agony and the importance of it. Father, I pray that you'll help us in that, to understand your love for us greater, your, our forgiveness in a completer way. Father, we pray that um, you'll send the Spirit. The Spirit will grab our hearts and our minds and open us to your word. May we see you as uh, the fulfillment of the law, as the one who uh, loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength, and loved his neighbor as himself here in the garden. May we understand how your righteousness is given to us because of that. Father, we pray that um, you'll use this to prepare us as we enter the last couple of weeks before Easter to, to really be impacted by the act of the cross and the resurrection. May you give us a bit of freedom so that we can be a better example of what it looks like to have faith in you and to know the power of the cross and the resurrection. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Um, you may be seated. So last week we, uh, we read uh, parts of 26 and uh, a few verses of 27, and we did this sort of survey of Peter and Judas. We're going to kind of build on that here in the garden. Um, but ultimately we talked last week about how Judas and Peter had similar backgrounds uh, in their relationship with Christ, but very different endings 
of their relationship with Christ and then in their lives. Um, they had both spent three years in deep relationship with Christ. They both spent three years seeing the power and the miracles of Christ. They both spent three years experiencing the love of Christ. They both spent three years at times being rebuked by Christ and being taught by Christ. They both had gone out and done things of God's, uh, or used it, God used them to go out and he did miracles through both of them. They both had experienced God and Christ in similar ways. But they both, in chapter 26, come to this point where they doubted God's or Christ's ability to give them what they truly valued. Um, For Judas, he came to this point where he just couldn't understand how if Christ was ultimately going to die, how he could give him the kingdom that he longed for. And so what what did he do? He went to the rulers who were plotting Christ's death and he said, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? See, Judas saw Christ as we all do. Peter, the same. Peter had said to Christ at the Last Supper, I will never betray you. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I will fight to my own death in order to save you. And of course, he was willing to do so. We read last week that when the guards came and they grabbed Christ, Peter pulled out his little knife and was ready to fight. But he was rebuked by God. And I think Peter began to question, okay, if God is allowing him, or if Christ is going to be captured and he's going to die at the hands of these people, then I don't think that this is the one who can give me what I thought I was going to get from him. So both of them come to this point where they begin to see Christ as nothing to them because they did not give him the something that they were truly longing for. Christ, to this point, was just a way to get the thing that they had placed utmost value in. And they thought, if we spend time with this guy, if this guy comes and does the great things that we expect him to do, we'll get that ultimate thing. But they began to question, maybe he is nothing, and therefore he can't give me that something. And so Judas, like we talked about, betrayed Christ, went and sought something from someone in order to hand him over. And Peter three times after Christ had warned him that he would do so, was asked, is this person important to you? Is this a friend of yours? And three times he said, he is nothing to me. Both betrayed Christ, both saw him as nothing, both acknowledged that through their actions and through their words. Both ended up weeping over their uh, betrayal. Judas, after... uh, Christ was handed over and the trial went before those and he tried to return the 30 coins that he had gotten for the betrayal. Seeing that that would be no good, seeing that he could not get his own righteousness through the returning of the coins, ends up weeping more. And then he ends up leaving and seeing no hope for his life. He either, as we talked about last week, either thought that still there was nothing in Christ that was worth restoring the relationship with him for, or there was utmost value in Christ, but he could never be forgiven. That relationship with him and Christ could never be restored. So he left with no hope, and he ended up committing suicide, hanging himself from a tree. Peter, on the other hand, as we talked about, uh, after the third betrayal, had him and Christ had this eye contact moment. They saw each other's eyes, and at some point in that, I don't know what it was, I don't know all that uh, was conveyed, but there was a little bit of hope that Peter was left with. And then Peter has this great conversation with Christ later after the resurrection, where Christ ultimately says to him, I I know you're ashamed right now. I know you're doubting your ability to love me right now, but I want you to know you are going to be used by me. You're going to tend my sheep. You're going to feed my flock. You're going to be used by me in such a way, and you're going to be so committed to me and so in love with me, you're going to do it to the very people who put me to death, and eventually they're going to put you to death because of what I'm going to do in you, because of the way I'm going to make you love me. And Peter left with this great hope. 
He saw in Christ there was infinite value, and he saw in Christ that his love made forgiveness possible. And we looked at uh, two other uh, passages where um, things were poured out, because last week we hear the story of Mary anointing Christ before the Last Supper with perfume. And Judas had said to him, to uh, Jesus, why would you do that? That is a lot of money that we could have sold. We could have sold that perfume and gotten a lot of money and given it to the poor. And Jesus said to him, the poor will always be with you, but I will only be with you for uh, a short time. And what we learned was we uh, looked at the uh, story of the Good Samaritan and how that was, story was about love because a, a, a religious lawyer came to Christ and he said, Christ, how do I get into heaven? And Christ gave him this answer. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we learned that the lawyer, in seeking to self-justify himself, tried to narrow down what does it mean to love my neighbor. And he said, asked Christ, okay, what's, the, what's my bottom line? What do I got to do? And Christ tells the story of the Good Samaritan, who, when he saw someone hurt, someone who culturally was his enemy, someone who culturally had abused and hurt his people, somebody who culturally looked down upon him as nothing, gave up his journey. He stopped his journey and made his new journey, returning the injured person to health. We learned that he poured out oil and he poured out um, some alcohol to clean and comfort the wounds. We learned that he bandaged the wounds with his own clothes. We learned that he took them to an inn and he paid two months time for the innkeeper to keep him there while he recovered. And then he told the innkeeper, if he needs anything within those two months, I will pay for it when I return. He opened a free credit with the guy and said, whatever he needs, buy it for him. And we learned that he spent that whole night at his bedside with that guy, being there to care for his wounds and being there for him emotionally and socially. And Christ was saying, there are no boundaries to your love. If you want to get into heaven by your own love, you have to understand that you have to give yourself completely to me and to everyone. And what Christ is telling him is, you will never love that way completely for all time in a way that you can be self-justified. Uh, we talked about how Keller said, to, basically, if you want to actually be able to love at some point, you have to first realize you can't currently love. Until you accept that you have an inability to truly love, you will never have the ability to truly love. Why? We looked at a second story where another woman had uh, poured out perfume, and we learned that she cried on Christ's feet and cleaned his feet with her, wiped her feet with his hair. And Christ was at a dinner with another uh, religious leader, and they were all reclining around this table, and this woman comes up, and the guy says, if you, Christ, really knew who that woman was because she was a, a sex worker. If you knew who that really was, you wouldn't let her touch you. And Christ said, ultimately tells this story of two debtors, one who had a great debt and one who had a lesser debt. And he says to the one who questioned him, which one, after their debt is forgiven, will love the uh, one who cleared their debt more? And he said correctly, the one who had the greater debt. And what Christ was saying was, those of us who think we can self-justify, those of us who think, you know, Christ can be a teacher to me, Christ can be a mentor to me, Christ can tell me how I can take my love to that next step that will really help me to justify myself, will make me the person that will make me acceptable to God. That is not possible. You can't think you just need to love a little bit better. You have to realize you do not love. You have a great debt. And when you realize Christ forgives you anyways, you weep at his feet. He's not just a teacher to you. He is your forgiver because he died and took your debt upon himself. Forgiveness was our big topic for last week. And we're going to continue in that discussion today. And it brings us to our, the garden. But ultimately, we ended last week talking about our, how we value Christ's death. 
And the question I asked basically or proposed was, do you value Christ's death because it allows you to be free to pursue this world as your Savior? Or do you value Christ's death because it has freed you from needing to pursue this world as your Savior? And therefore, you can love God and love his people. Today, I want us to, uh, to spend some time seeing what love looks like in true agony. And that brings us to the garden. And what we're going to see is the greatness of Christ's love. But we, in order to see it, we have to understand first what caused Christ's agony in the garden. Two, why was it in the garden? And then, what does it mean or what does it do for us? So let's take a look at Christ's agony. Uh, Verses 37 and 38 read, And taking along Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be distressed and troubled. And then he said to him, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. First important thing is this began. He began. This was not something that existed prior to this point. At some point, as he was he left the other, not, or the other eight disciples there and was continuing deeper into the garden with those three. He was hit by something. Something came upon him to such a distressing point that he thought he might die from it. That's what, those were his words. He was concerned. The, the agony, the distress was so powerful. In his life, he didn't know if he would make it to the cross. It was a great force of what hit him in the garden. He makes it very clear what that is in, in, the, uh, in his prayers to God. And he mentions in all three prayers this cup. And in the Old Testament, the cup stands for God's wrath. We're going to take a look at a couple verses just to make sure that we understand this. Psalms 11.6 reads, Let him rain coals on the wicked, Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Isaiah fifty one seventeen. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk the dredges of the bowl and the cup of staggering. Ezekiel twenty three thirty three. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, a cup of your sister Samaria. Cup in the Old Testament stood for God's wrath. Christ in the garden, I believe, begins to experience God's wrath. We're going to talk about why that is here in a second, but it's important for us to understand what wrath means. We're going to get there in a second, but I do want to... uh, We read a couple of Jonathan Edwards' quotes earlier. I'm going to read one again because I know it's big and it's meaty. And I want you to understand, because Edwards writes this great sermon called Christ's Agony. He spends two hours on it. I'm going to not spend two hours on it. Um, I wish I could over the next few weeks, but it's an amazing sermon. Please read it someday if you can. Um, But please, you want to know God's love for you? You have to know the agony he experienced in the garden. This is what Edwards writes. That conflict which the soul of Christ then endured was occasioned by those views and apprehensions. The sorrow and distress which his soul then suffered arose from that lively and full and immediate view which he had then given him of that cup of wrath by which God the Father did as he were setting as if as it were set the cup down before him, for him to take it and drink it. And it was dread which his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath, into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace, that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. And for what was that human nature of Christ to such mighty wrath as this? It was in itself 
without the supports of God, but a feeble worm of the dust, a thing that was crushed before the moth. None of God's children ever had such a cup set before them as this first being of every creature had. Christ was very sorrowful in the garden. Actually, we're going to see this in a second, but Luke uh, records that his sorrow was so great that when he returned from that first time of prayer, his disciples saw him sweating profusely. And not just regular sweat, but that blood was literally coming out of his pores because he was in such agony, such conflict. Edwards continues, and he writes, But Christ's inward distress and grief was not merely such as caused him to be in a violent and universal sweat, but such as caused him to sweat blood. The distress and anguish of his mind was so unspeakably extreme as to force his blood through the pores of his skin, and that so plentiful as to fall in great clots or drops from his body to the ground. Great agony. We... We have funny symbols in the Christian religion, one of which is the cross. The cross at that time meant you were a criminal deserving of no life. This is not typically the type of symbol you create when you're trying to create a movement, when you're trying to get people to follow you. You don't usually say, look, I died a criminal's death. It's also interesting that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to watch a few movies. Some of us, we're going to watch movies about Christ's death. We're going to watch movies about Christ's uh, beatings leading up to his death. We're going to watch movies about the mocking and be, him being spit upon. But yet, nowhere in the Bible, in the Gospels, when they talk about those things, does it talk about Christ's blood? It doesn't talk about his blood dripping down his head when they nailed the crown of thorns on him. It doesn't talk about blood dripping from the cross talks about blood dripping from him in the garden. And we have a tendency to watch these movies and become very emotional and feel very motivated to follow Christ. But if we don't recognize what the purpose of the blood was, we'll, no, we'll not have any real change in our life. God in the garden is pointing us to the purpose of the blood. He pointed to the purpose of the blood right before this when he had the Last Supper with his disciples as well. So today I really want to spend time helping you guys understand what the blood means, the magnitude of the agony, and what that does for us. First off, we have to understand that This is no agony that any of us have ever felt to this point. We have seen lots of people die great deaths for great causes. A lot of us love The Passion of the Christ, and a lot of us love Mel Gibson's other movie about William Wallace. And for some of us, we watch the ends of those movies, and we feel the same emotion. Because we don't connect the blood with truth. We look at it and we go, that's admirable. We look at it and go, William Wallace was a good man, someone I would like to be like. But Christ has a different view of his blood. So we're going to look at that for a little bit. We're going to build to it, but you have to understand, there's a difference between the death of William Wallace and the death of Jesus Christ. And to see the blood simply, and to see the gore simply of the cross without connecting it to the truth of God's word is to miss what God wants to do through the cross. Isaiah 53, 4-7 reads, However, he was the one who lifted up our sickness and carried our pain, yet we ourselves assumed him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his wounds, we were healed. All of us have wandered about like sheep. We each have turned to his own way, and Yahweh let fall on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was brought like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep is dumb before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. 
The blood, as verse 5 said, was meant to be our healing. It was not meant to motivate us to act and live a different way so we can heal ourselves. It was meant to be our healing. Spurgeon writes this about verse 6 from Isaiah 52. uh, The verse that talked about how we were scattered about, and yet Yahweh let fall on him the iniquity of us all. Spurgeon writes, Sin was scattered throughout this world as abundantly as light, and Christ is made to suffer the full effect of the bayful rays which stream from the sun of sin. God, as it were, holds up a burning glass and concentrates all the scattered rays in a focus upon Christ. That seemed to be the thought of the text. The Lord has focused upon him the iniquity of us all. That which was scattered about or abroad everywhere is here brought into a terrible concentration upon the devoted head of our blessed Lord. All the sins of his people were made to meet. This was no ordinary agony. This was no ordinary wrath poured out on Christ. It was wrath for every sin, for everyone who ever lived on him. What does God's wrath look like? First, Second Thessalonians 1.9 tells us, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Keller writes, The reason that destruction is or the reason that is destruction is that we were built for the presence of God. We need the presence of God like the flowers need the sun or they wither. We need his love. We need his glory. We need to serve him. We don't have life without God. Christ had had life for all eternity in the relationships of the Trinity. Christ had been in full relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit for all of eternity. He always knew they were there for him. He always knew they were loving and serving and glorifying him and that he was loving and serving and glorifying the other. And they knew this perfect, holy, sacrificial relationship was always there. What happens in the garden? Commentary uh, written by a guy named Bill Lane uh, from his account of this story in Mark reads this. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer of the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. What happened in the garden is Jesus was going to pray, and as he's going, he's praying, and he's knowing what's coming. And you have to understand a few things about Christ. I will get to in a second, but Christ in his spiritualness felt some anguish at the Last Supper. Uh, John thirteen twenty one reads, When he had said these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. But Christ was more than just a deity, more than just a spiritual being. Christ was both fully God and fully man. This is important for us to understand because the fully man part of Christ to this point and the spiritual part of Christ had always been in relationship with God. The spiritual nature of Christ knew what was coming. The fully man part of Christ didn't know from a deity perspective what was coming. And so here is Christ as fully man, having always been in relationship with God the Father, knowing, having a vision of what's coming. He doesn't know the entirety of it all. And he goes and he prays, and all of a sudden, in his sorrow, in his anguish, he looks up, and that thing that he, that person that he had always counted on, that had always been them, was missing. The joy, the peace, the rest of his life all of a sudden disappeared. God's wrath was poured out upon him in the garden. God had removed himself from Christ. And Christ did not have what had always been his life. 
Spurgeon continues on about this agony, and he writes this. It's not possible that Jesus should enjoy the light of his Father's presence while he was made sin for us. Consequently, he went through a horror of great darkness, the root and source of which was the withdrawing of the conscious enjoyment of his Father's presence. More than that, not only was the light of God withdrawn, but positive sorrow was inflicted. God must punish sin. And though sin was not Christ by his actual doing, yet it was laid upon him, and therefore he was made a curse for us. What were the pangs which Christ endured? I cannot tell you. His griefs are worthy to be described according to Greek liturgy as unknown sufferings. The height and depth, the length and breadth of what Christ endured, no heart can guess, nor tongue can tell, nor can imagination reveal. Only God knows the grief by which the Son of God was put when the Lord made to meet upon him the iniquity of us all. The agony was great. The wrath that resulted in the separation was so strong on Christ, it left him anguished to the point he thought he was going to die. My big question at this point is, okay, so he's not on the cross yet. So why is he experiencing agony in the garden? Why did it start here? Jonathan Edwards, once again, we read this earlier. Really, this is, I, I never had thought about this before, and this really helped me see the love of God in a new way, in a greater way. Wrestle with this. This is what Jonathan Edwards writes. The strength of Christ's love more especially appears in this, that when he had such a full view of the dreadfulness of the cup that he was to drink, that so amazed him, he would, notwithstanding, even then, take it up and drink it. Then seems to have been the greatest and most peculiar trial of the strength and of the love of Christ, when God set down the bitter portion before him and let him see what he had to drink, if he persisted in this love to sinners and brought him to the mouth of the furnace that he might see its fierceness and have a full view of it and have time then to consider whether he would go in and suffer the flames of this furnace for such unworthy creatures or not. This was, as it were, proposing it to Christ's last consideration what he would do. As much as if it had been said to him, here is the cup that you are to drink unless you will give up your undertaking of sinners, even leave them to perish as they deserve. You, will you take this cup and drink it for them or not? There is the furnace into which you are to be cast. If they are to be saved, either they must perish or you must endure this for them. There you see how terrible the heart of this furnace is. You see what pain and anguish you must endure on the morrow. Unless you give up the cause of sinners, what will you do? Is your love such that you will go on? Will you cast yourself into this dreadful furnace of wrath? Christ's soul was overwhelmed with the thought. His feeble human nature shrunk at the dismay, this dismal sight. God poured out his wrath for a time in the garden because as a fully man, Christ had not experienced it. We've all been asked to do things with friends. Can you come over and help me do this? Hey, you want to go for a walk? You want to go for a run? You want to go for a bike? Hey, you want to do this? And we thought, yeah, that sounds a little difficult. That sounds like it might be painful. I mean, what exactly? Oh, it's not that big of a deal. God the Father made sure Christ knew the fullness of the deal. Christ did not go ignorantly to the cross. He knew the totality of the wrath that would be poured out upon him. And in that we see two very important things. One, his love and his commitment to obeying his Father. And two, his love for us. First, obedience. In verse 39, we see that he refers, as he's calling out to his father, he calls him my father. In the midst of the wrath, he calls out to him, my father. 
And in his first prayer, I think sometimes we hear it and we go, he's asking God to make it so he doesn't have to do his will. He's saying, I don't want to do your will. But that's not what he's saying to God. He's not what he's saying to the Father. What he's saying is, can I do your will without taking the cup? I want to do your will. My heart is your will. I just, is there another way without taking this cup? But not my will, but your will be done. He's calling out for God's will. He's seeking obedience. He's seeking to know what God wants him to do. And so the second question changes. He does not continue to ask the same question. The next question is, if it's not possible to do your will without taking the cup, do your will. And then he repeats the same prayer the third time. In John 17, 1-3, we see a little bit of what that prayer looks like. Jesus says these things. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, in order that your Son may glorify you, just as you have given him authority over all flesh, in order that he would give eternal life to them, everyone whom you are given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I don't want this to be a part of your will. But if the wrath is necessary for your will to be done, he begins to say, God, glorify yourself through me. He ultimately is praying, God, destroy me in your wrath. Why? Because God, give my people who are separated from you and heading towards eternal wrath, life. Jesus Praise one time. Do your will without this cup, but not my will, but your will be done. And then the rest of the time he prays, God, destroy me with your wrath so that I can give those who are living a life of destruction, a life separated from you, a life experiencing your wrath, life. Complete obedience and submission to the Father. The second thing, his love for us. Notice, we read in the, in the middle of those prayers, Jesus goes and prays and he returns and he finds his disciples sleeping. And he tells his disciples that he's grieved for the second time. He's struggling, he's hurt, he's in pain. To be wa- at watch, be with me, be there for me. Pray for me. Pray for yourself. And he leaves and he goes and prays and he comes back and he finds him asleep again. And he leaves and he goes and prays one more time and he comes back and he finds him asleep again. And we just talked about earlier. He had predicted that one of his closest friends, his disciples, will betray him and give him over to those who are going to kill him. And another one will deny him three times and the rest of them, after his capture, will run away. Christ in the garden does not see just the fullness of the wrath. He sees the fullness of our sin. He sees us exactly for who we are. Those that only love him in order to get something else, which is no real love for him at all. We don't see him as God. We don't submit to him. We don't long just to be with him. We don't love him like he was trying to tell the religious lawyer who asked him about what it means to get into heaven. Christ saw not only the great agony of God's wrath that would be poured out on him while he was on the cross, but he also saw the complete fallenness of man. He sees us and knows us exactly for who we are, those who see him as nothing, if he's not leading us to his creation, that we see as our ultimate something. And yet, in light of the fullness of the wrath that's going to fall upon him on the cross, and in light of the fullness of our fallenness, our sinfulness, our enmity or hatred to him, he dies for us anyways. And prays for us while he does it. 
All our sins were before him, and his love for us led him to the cross anyways. Never in all of this world have we ever seen, in such a moment of sorrow, the fulfillment of the law. We talked about this last week. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you get into heaven. Christ did that perfectly. Keller writes this, Never in the history of the world has someone had the love of God, the love of his neighbor, under this kind of stress, and therefore what you have is the first perfect act of obedience in history, perfect fulfillment of the law. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and his neighbor as himself. Why is this important? Because without that, you don't have a perfect perfect sacrifice to be in your place. None of us can die for each other to make ourselves right with God because we are sinners as well. But Christ, because he lived perfectly, he fulfilled the law perfectly, can die in our place. He can be our perfect atonement, our perfect sacrifice. Spurgeon writes this, Sin meets on Christ, and Christ is punished for sin. What then? Why then sin is put away? If the penalty is endured, justice asks no more. The debt is discharged. There is no debt. The claim made, the claim met. The claim ceases to be. Though we could not meet that claim in our proper persons, but Christ met it for us. Christ died the penalty that was met for us. And so Christ, when he advocates on our behalf, does not just go, I Think of them as good. Christ goes to God and says, I died already for that punishment. So to punish them again would be unjust. He is not simply a lawyer arguing on our behalf. He is the one who imprisons himself on our behalf. So God, being just, cannot punish us again. Spurgeon began to talk about how sometimes when we see the attributes of God and we see the sacrifice and we see the magnitude of the punishment poured out out on him on the cross, we end up mourning. We end up sorrowful. This great God, this great person, so perfect, so good, died for me. And what Spurgeon writes in response to that, he writes this, There is justice, sharp and bright like a lance, but justice is my friend. If God is just, he cannot punish me for sins for which Jesus has offered sanctification. As long as there is justice in the heart of the deity, it cannot be that a soul justly claiming Christ as his substitute can himself be punished. As for mercy, love, truth, honor, everything matchless, Godlike and divine about deity, I say of all these things, you are my friends, you are my guarantees that since Christ died for me, so I cannot die. Friends, don't die in the light of the goodness of God. Rejoice in it. Because that's why he died. Because he doesn't want to just forgive you. He wants to give his righteousness to you. We can talk about total forgiveness. We can sing songs like we just did about unchanging grace because of this agony in the garden. Christ knew the totality of the cost and gave himself totally to the Father's cup so that we can have him totally. What does that mean, we can have him totally? It means that he gives us his righteousness. We are given Christ's righteousness, seen as obedient like Christ. And we will be brought to a state of complete obedience. We will at some point love like we were designed. The first time Christ returned to the uh, disciples after the prayer, he said to them, continue to pray. But he says, uh, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What he's meaning is there's a part of you that longs to do God's will. We all know it. We all live a life of knowing we fail. But our flesh is the source of that power in our life. We give ourselves over to the draw of our flesh and we sin. And he says that to them. And it's so great, 
such a beautiful picture because as their physical bodies let them down, we see Christ, when his physical, physical body was in its deepest agony, his spirit won. When he had the wrath of God on him in such a way that we have not experienced to this point, his spirit won. He sought to do God's will. And because of that, his righteousness, that obedience is given to us. Keller went on to write this. He's not just dying a death, dying as, he's not just a dying Savior, but a doing Savior. He did not just save us with passive obedience to Christ, but what the theologians call active obedience of Christ. In other words, he perfectly obeyed so that when we believe in him, not only do our sins go into his account, not only does God treat him as we deserve to be treated, but his righteousness goes into our account. This kind of righteousness. See, God doesn't just forgive us for what we had done to this point and then says, now you must be good and you must be obedient and you must love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. God died for the totality of our sins and he says, because of my obedience, I am going to give that to you. The Holy Spirit comes in our life. Last week we talked about this idea of untouchables. And I just briefly talked about this, this, this point earlier. And we saw the sacrificial system we've talked about the last month or so. And how our sins made us unavailable to God. And then Christ comes along and we can have a relationship with God through proximity. If we're near Christ, we can have this relationship with God in spite of our sin. And Christ dies in our place and gives us his obedience. And now, not only can we have an, a relationship through proximity, we can have a relationship through touch. The Holy Spirit comes into us. And eventually, the Holy Spirit is going to do this work. Lewis writes, The Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. The Holy Spirit is going to make us good to such an extent that there will be no barrier between us and God. His obedience is going to become ours. And we are at some point going to be as obedient to God as Christ is in the garden. The beauty is, is there will be no agony at that point because we will be in heaven or on the new earth with God. I think a lot of us tend to look at stuff like this, the cross and all that, and we go, that's, that's, that seems admirable. But when we get to this point of punishing sins, we go, I kind of, I'm not sure about this idea of hell, of punishment, of wrath, because we think it makes God somehow unloving. But understand, as we talked about with the temple a few weeks back, and understand as we talked about the destruction of this world, ultimately what that means for us is our sinful stained bodies die. If God is a God who does not pour out wrath, who does not punish those who have sinned against him and do not accept what Christ did on the cross, we will never not be around sin. We will never not be around people who only are loving God and loving his people. We will be around people who are living for themselves, and we will always be in a place of hurt and pain and agony. But the agony in the garden, the realization of the fullness of our sin, and Christ dying anyways, has made a way to take us from agony to joy. The love of God is so great. His act of forgiveness seen in the light of the agony of the garden So amazing. The other interesting symbol we have, one of them is the manger. For those of you starting, wanting to start a movement, the best way to start a movement is not to say, hey, I was born in a manger and I died on a cross. The manger is not just to say that Christ was lowly, but that Christ was coming to a lowly place. Us, this world, is a giant manger. And Christ enters it, 
and goes to a cross to bring us out of a manger and into a mansion that John 14 tells us we have a room in because Christ has gone to prepare it for us. These symbols are important because they convey truths that if we don't understand, we will miss Christ and we'll make him simply another William Wallace or somebody like it, another teacher, another good person that we think if we're just like them, we will get what we've always longed for. And Christ comes along and says, no, you'll never be good, but I will be good in your place and give you my goodness because of it. Let's pray. God, we pray that um, we will know the fullness of your agony. We will know the fullness of our depravity, of our sinfulness. May we see your love in light of that. May we understand your grace and mercy in light of that. Father, we pray that um, the agony and your death won't be our freedom to live for this world anymore. It'll be something that's so infinite value to us that we're freed from the power of the flesh and the, the need to pursue this world. God, impute your righteousness in our hearts, in our minds. Help us to love you with all our heart, all our strength, and all our mind, to love your people as yourself, as you love them. Help us to die to ourselves and take up our cross. Lord, make us a church that is known as people who are selfless. As a people so full of joy because of the completeness of your forgiveness and the promise of the joy to come. That we give ourselves completely to this city, to each other, to you. Do what you need to do in our lives to help us to see the things we still hold on to in this world for our joy. Help us to know the weaknesses of our flesh and tell us how we can find your value above those things. In your name we pray. Amen.